Hey y'all, welcome to the Taking Care of Bitcoin podcast. Here we talk to Bitcoin noobs and answer all their new to Bitcoin questions. So if you're new to Bitcoin or you're curious about Bitcoin, you've come to the right place. Let's take care of it. TCB, baby. Hey everybody, welcome back to TCB for another TCB short. And today for the short, we're going to be tackling the question, who controls Bitcoin? Now, the short answer to this is that nobody controls Bitcoin, but that's a little hard to understand when you come to Bitcoin um, for the first time. I know it's hard to understand. There's no company. There's no nation state. There's nothing. So Bitcoin is simply a decentralized, open, peer-to-peer monetary protocol. So it's not controlled by any state. It's not controlled by any company. It's really just open source software that is opt-in run by thousands of nodes worldwide that validate transactions, enforce the rules of the network, and then process transactions through what they call mining, which is really just computer processing power that takes valid transactions, groups them together, and then adds them to the blockchain, and then disseminates this record of all the transactions back to all of the nodes on the network. So it's just an open source software project that anybody can download, anybody can run, and therefore participate in the network. And there's more and more people coming onto this network and opting in to run that network or run that software and join that network every single day. So it just it's a growing financial network, a growing monetary protocol, but it isn't controlled by anybody. So Uh, I think the next logical question would be like, well, if it isn't controlled by anybody, then how do you make any changes to it if you if there's nobody that no place to go? You know, there's no central board. There's no central person. Uh, But just being an open source project, there's open source development. So anybody can um, make a proposal. It's called a Bitcoin improvement proposal of some kind of change they want to make to the to the network. And then it's up to all of the nodes on the network by consensus to decide whether they want to integrate this new proposal and run a new version of the software. So it's just a completely opt-in consensus mechanism amongst thousands of nodes worldwide. So that makes it very, very difficult to change, but it doesn't make it impossible to change. It has been done. They have added, uh, you know, Taproot, SegWit, certain things to the Bitcoin network over time. So uh, the way I think about that, I like to parallel that to kind of consensus mechanism of the U.S. Constitution. It was meant to be very, very difficult to change by design. So in order to update the U.S. or amend the U.S. Constitution, either two-thirds of Congress or two-thirds of the states have to propose a new amendment, and then at least three-fourths of the states must, must ratify this amendment. So it was meant to be – meant to have a certain amount of inertia where – it was supposed to be difficult to change the rules because you, if it was going to be rules that were going to affect everyone, you wanted to make sure there was overwhelming consensus to make a rule change. And Bitcoin works in the same way, but I think in, in some ways superior to that because I think the Constitution was so difficult to change that we've just kind of come to the point that we just ignore it instead. So You never really see anybody proposing any amendments anymore. You never really see anybody proposing any changes to it. We just kind of um, kind of give it lip service when it's convenient, and then we just ignore it when it's inconvenient. So the beauty about the Bitcoin consensus is 
it cannot be overridden. It cannot be ignored. So in order to participate in the network, you must abide by the rules of the network, and all of the nodes on the network are able to enforce that rule set and enforce that consensus in a way that cannot be ignored. And I think that's a key difference, particularly when it comes to uh, our money and how much power control over money um, can wield. So uh, who controls the U.S. money supply? It is the Federal Reserve System, which people like to say it's not federal and it doesn't have any reserves. And if anybody's curious about kind of the history of the Federal Reserve, I'd uh, point you to a book called The Creature from Jekyll Island, where it was basically in like prior to 1913 when the Fed was instituted, it was just a cartel of the largest, most powerful bankers kind of came together and created this system. So the Federal Reserve System actually is not a government entity. It's more like a cartel of bankers that does the government's bidding to keep it financed by just creating money out of thin air and then loaning it to the American people with interest. So it's kind of ostensibly independent, but uh, in reality, they kind of work in cahoots with the government and do whatever the government needs to keep itself financed. So uh, the fact that we have such giant deficits now, only some of that is covered by taxation, and then you have to figure out how to finance the rest of the spending and the way they finance the rest of the spending is by issuing – the Treasury is issuing more debt, and then whatever debt is not absorbed by the free market, the Fed will monetize, and they will create – put money out of, out of thin air and buy that debt and give the, and the government all of the financing it, it needs to continue spending well beyond its means. We're running almost $2 trillion deficits every single year now. So – Part of the problem with that is, you know, you're creating all this money out of thin air that's not based by or backed by actual productivity. So with that process, since the Fed has been in existence since 1913, the dollar's lost over 96% of its purchasing power. So it's just constantly getting debased away and constantly getting inflated. So your purchasing power, anything you're able to save, just keeps getting chewed on and chewed on and chewed on over time. And that's probably going to accelerate moving forward, given that our current fiscal position, we're at $33.9 trillion of national debt and $212 trillion of unfunded liabilities. That's Social Security and Medicare payments that have been promised but have not yet been uh, financed. So that's probably going to just accelerate moving forward, and that purchasing power is going to be lost at, at a faster pace than it even has over the past 100 years. So one problem with government controlling the money supply is that inflation, that dilution problem. And the second problem would be uh, censorship. So anybody that kind of controls the money, particularly now that it's been kind of put in digital format, uh, they can kind of choose who's allowed to use and who isn't allowed to use money. So you've seen a couple high-profile examples of this. Um, at the nation-state level, we saw the Canadian trucker protests over vaccine mandates in 2022. Uh, the Canadian government did not like that protest, and uh, instead of just going after the protesters themselves, they in fact actually went after the bank accounts of not only protesters, but anyone that had provided any financing to the protesters. So uh, even if you saw that as some kind of – in an apolitical fashion, if you just see that as a free speech movement where some people are – you know, we kind of have the right to – well, at least in America, we have the right to assemble, the right to protest – but that's all they were doing. But anyone that chose to kind of help them with any resources, their bank accounts were frozen. So there's this uh, threat of censorship if you kind of allow this banking cartel to control the money. And then even uh, if you take it down from a nation state level, 
uh, I don't know if anybody remembers, PayPal was threatening to censor individuals on its platform for what anything they deemed to be uh, misinformation. Anybody that was deemed to be putting out misinformation by their judgment, PayPal was threatening to actually freeze or censor like some of their accounts. So um, nation states can do it. Companies can do it. And if you contrast that to Bitcoin being an open monetary protocol that nobody controls, so they can't do those things. They can't inflate it away because Bitcoin is absolutely scarce. It's the only absolute scarce asset we've ever had in the history of mankind that could be uh, a standard for money, that could be money. So there's only going to be ever be 21 million Bitcoin, and it's rolling out on this protocol in a known issuance schedule. So from here all the way until 2140, you know exactly how many Bitcoin are going to be issued every single uh, day, and then every four years the supply gets cut in half, but the entire schedule is known. So it's not going to inflate. It's going to be issued at a certain rate that is transparent and known to everybody. And then once you hit that 21 million mark, it's not going to ever, no, they're never going to create more of it. So none of your purchasing power is ever going to get debased away like it has in the current dollar system. And then it's also censorship resistant because there's no value judgment on participation like it's the bitcoin network is just mathematics it's just a mathematical software protocol so it's not making any kind of value judgment on who can play who can't play who do we agree with who do we disagree with it's just like simply math and uh there's an interesting little anecdote i like to bring up to drive this home uh, if you know terry cruz terry cruz is a pretty well-known actor but uh, terry cruz was traveling in italy he was in milan and he had tried to get some some of his own money wired there, and he went to a bank to try to pick up his money. So um, just a quote from him that I think really outlines this idea of being censorship resistant and just being uh, mathematics that does not actually put a value judgment on who's participating in the network. Terry Crews says, I had a bank wire me funds, and I showed up with all my paperwork, and the bank manager turned me down because I was black. At that point, I knew the existing financial system wasn't for me. Bitcoin doesn't know I'm black. And I, I love the way he kind of puts that. It just shows that the network is blind. And if you really want just to be treated equally under the law or, or every, have the same rules for everybody that's participating, that's kind of a key point is it doesn't really matter who you are. In his case, it was because he was African-American, but it doesn't really matter what the value judgment is. It's just the point that the protocol is just mathematics. It does not care who you are. It does not care who you're affiliated with. It does not care if you're the political enemy of anybody. It's just going to process transactions uh, just kind of completely agnostically. It doesn't, it doesn't make any kind of value judgment on who can participate. It just provides banking and financial empowerment to anyone anywhere in the world that has a smartphone. So unlike our current financial system that you can kind of be cut out of if anyone, whether it's our government in the U.S. or any other authoritarian government overseas, kind of deems you to be a bad actor of sorts and wants to cut you off, that's not possible in Bitcoin. It treats everybody completely equally, like completely equal, completely blind. The rules apply the same to everybody. So uh, when you talk about a money that potentially could be a reserve currency for the world. Like everyone, like right now, the whole world uses dollars as the world reserve currency and they use financial or U.S. treasuries as the world reserve asset. Um, it's kind of important to protect the neutral, apolitical nature of that money because everyone has to trust that 
They can get in and out of that money. They can use that money, and no one's ever going to shut it off or confiscate it. So that kind of matters for everyone from individuals, and it matters all the way up to nation states. And another really high-profile example was uh, the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine, and not to make any kind of value judgment on like endorsing Russia um, military action, but as soon as they invaded Ukraine— the United States confiscated all of their dollar-denominated assets and uh, cut them off of the SWIFT system so they could no longer participate in the kind of the global financial system. And this kind of just sent a signal to the entire world that the dollar could and would be weaponized. So I think Russia caught, learned that lesson, but also you think of any other, you know, China or any other kind of large global actor they were paying attention too. So in some ways, I think the dollar may have disqualified itself as that world reserve currency because it was no longer neutral. It was no longer understood to be apolitical. It was going to be wielded as a weapon, and everybody knows that to be true moving forward. So I really like the Ray Dalio. He has a really is a famous hedge fund manager. He's got a really interesting thesis. He wrote a book called The Changing World Order, kind of talks about these kind of cyclical uh, evolution of empires and how a rising power eventually um, comes to challenge the entrenched power. And so it's, it's, not, it's not like the dollar's the first time we've had a world reserve currency. The Dutch, back when Amsterdam was like the, the hub of global trade, uh, the Dutch currency was the global reserve currency. And then the British kind of rose up to challenge them, and then the British supplanted them, and the pound became the global reserve currency. And then just knowing our history, we rose up into into power, and we took on the British, and then we we became the world reserve currency. So there's a cycle of kind of empires growing, uh, becoming the world-dominant world reserve currency, getting way too over-leveraged and indebted, and then another rising power kind of taking like, taking the baton, if you will, and kind of running with it for the next next however many hundred years or so. Um, but it's his thesis is that kind of China is probably positioning itself to be that rising power that perhaps like kind of takes on the, uh, the hegemon and maybe becomes the next world power. But I would argue that perhaps Bitcoin provides a way to break out of this cycle because... Uh, nobody really wants to be subservient to anyone else's money. That's what kind of causes the friction in the first place. And everybody is kind of looking for a neutral, apolitical solution, but we've never had one because all of our currencies have always been kind of controlled by nation states up to this point and that kind of cyclical nature. But I think Bitcoin maybe provides a way to break out of that cycle where not only is it digital and fast enough to... Um, work for the global economy in a way that something like a commodity like gold is not. It's too analog. It's kind of too slow. It can't move fast enough to like support a technological global economy. But Bitcoin provides a solution that is apolitical and it is neutral and it can end the inflation. It can end the censorship and you don't have to trust each other. Nation states don't have to trust each other. Because we know that there's a trusted rule set that applies the same to everybody, no matter who you are, where you come from, or what you believe, and that everyone can just trust that thing, that apolitical neutral option. So this will just kind of uh, gives us a chance to break that cycle, remove the power from the governments, and return it to the people. Um, and I like to say that, particularly since we've just seen the money supply just skyrocket you can look at any m2 money supply chart for the united states 
and it just goes straight up. You know, we've had a tiny dip here, and this is like we're doing this kind of qualitative tightening that the Fed's been doing recently, but it's going to be the anomaly. It's going to have to continue up. So I like to say the government should not control the size of the money supply. The money supply should control the size of governments. And I think by giving them this monetary instrument where not only do they not have to be accountable to us to pay for what they want to do through taxation because they can simply monetize the rest, they don't really have to care about what you think about anything because there's no constraints. And uh, I'll just leave everybody with this Thomas Jefferson quote where Thomas Jefferson said, I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. So I think Bitcoin is that opportunity. It's that opportunity to put the money or the power of money back with the people. So uh, who controls the money supply? It's this banking cartel in conjunction with the United States government. But who controls Bitcoin? And that answer is the short answer is nobody controls Bitcoin. It's just an open source software project that anybody can opt into. But the fact that anyone can become a node on that network and participate in that consensus mechanism means that the people control Bitcoin. It's the people's money. So I'll just leave it there. Bitcoin is money of the people, by the people, for the people. All right, all right. Thank you guys for tuning in to the Taking Care of Bitcoin podcast. If you want to get in touch, find me on Twitter at TCBcoin. That's at TCBcoin. All right, catch you next time. See ya.